Yeah, that's, that's what we thought. So okay. we'll each speak a little bit and then open it up. Okay, so Rabbi Sue Thank you. Well, I'm really delighted to be back here and to be with my friend and neighbor. We actually live about three blocks apart. This was very convenient. I walked over to Don's house this morning. We jumped in the car and came out here. None of the snow had stuck in Center City, so we really felt like we were coming out to the wilds when we got here, and there's snow on the ground, and it really felt like winter, and so we're really delighted to be here. Having the opportunity to reconnect in preparation for this program has been a great pleasure for me. When June called, asked me to come, I said pretty immediately yes, come back to your community where I've been really honored to be on a number of occasions. I have great respect and love for Rabbi Cohen and he's really been one of my mentors since I came to Philadelphia. Rabbi Egolf and I have had lots of wonderful times together talking about how to do exactly what my job has been really my whole time working for the URJ, which is keeping congregations healthy. I've been very invested in keeping your congregation healthy. If any small role that I can play with your lay leaders and your professional leaders in keeping this as a healthy place. Also, I've had the honor and pleasure of working with Cantor Kazansky. Feels like working with June, I was, there was the sense of the next generation of rabbis, even though her daughter, Rabbi Batsheva Opel, is hardly the next generation. She's uh, very much in the fullness of her own career, but it's been very exciting for me to see her launched in a new position in Chicago. And if you don't know about that, just ask June and she'll tell you. <laughs> it's, that's just the kind of the family connections that we all have. The reason I'm here today um, is that I, that June had read um, a piece that I wrote in a book that I'm going to share with you, um, a very small part of it. The topic today really is dealing with our own vulnerabilities and what place our faith, our Judaism, our spirituality can play in helping us confront the, the realities of our own family challenges and crises, particularly, obviously, this is mostly about health crises, whether it's a family member, whether it's ourselves, whether it's um, somebody very close to us. When we feel like we may have put together the kind of, uh, an appropriate toolbox for dealing with daily living, and then something much larger or much more challenging crashes into our lives. And our question is, what are the tools that we have? So I don't know if I'd call them the tricks of the trade. I so appreciate always Judy's extraordinary poetry. I, and I, I think you're probably one of the only synagogues in the country that has a poet laureate. And how blessed you are to have Judy and how appropriate that you... Thank God you can you, that you can't afford her. And actually, the answer to that is they can't. They cannot afford not to have you. So you are very, very blessed. I love that poem, and I want Don and I both want copies. Yes. So tricks, tools. Part of what we're asking today is, what do we have close to us? You already have a hint because there's a pile of something very familiar on every table, and we'll make sure that they're distributed in a way that everyone has access to them. We are going to take a look at the Sidor because I think that part of, part of what I'm going to say, I'm going to give it away at the beginning, is that most of what we need, we already have, 
or we already have access to and we just forgot about it. That was came in through Judy's poems so powerfully. I mean, I love the images, the warmth of the towel out of the dryer, the folding of the sheets. This is the, what is the beauty and the power that comes from our daily activities, however mundane or quotidian they may, they may seem to be, they can be a source of great strength to us in our sense of keeping the chaos of the world at bay. And that's really what we're all doing. To me, in many ways, that's what spirituality is all about. Really, as Judy said so beautifully, keeping our balance in a world that is, that is shifting under our feet. So I'm going to begin with just reading a very short portion, because, particularly because this, this is a chapter from a book that some of you may be familiar with. It's called Life, Faith, and Cancer. It was edited by a rabbi in California who asked me when he learned that I was facing, I had just been diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and I'm doing really well, I'm totally fine. This, my beloved colleague, Doug, said, why do you, I want you to write a chapter for this book. And I was like, no, I don't do the Disease of the Month Club, we're not doing this. Um, to make a long story short, after he sent me the introduction that he had worked up for the book and talked to me about the vision of the book, I decided I would try to write something for him. And it became the first chapter of the book, and, the, and it's called Discovering Vulnerability. So I'm going to just read a, a bit of it to you. And, um, and it's not, you'll see it's not about me. It doesn't begin about me. My brother John was born when I was 18 months old, so he is a part of my earliest memories. We had two years together, just the two of us, before our first sister was born, and then our second sister, and then our brother, an unusual Jewish family. The Catholic school on the corner, when my mother would walk the, all the babies, the priest would smile at my mother, <laughs> not realizing she was Mrs. Levi and belonged to the temple. OK. We were the oldest, John and I, a mismatched pair who sat together on the school bus. And for years after we had been tucked into bed, we crept into each other's rooms to talk, often falling asleep on the end of the other's bed. As the years passed, I watched out for him a boy who devoured books and gallons of ice cream, a boy whose body grew before his sensibilities could catch up, a deeply sensitive and creative soul whose raw energy often frightened his younger siblings, his parents, and frequently himself. When John realized after a couple of weeks of classes that he had made a disastrous college choice, he hitchhiked the 320 miles between our two campuses, and we spent days strategizing how he could begin again in a place where he would find people more like himself, hungry for intellectual controversy, music, and film, eager to deconstruct ideas, challenge the status quo, dream a better, more just, more equitable world. He found a more suitable college, went to Woodstock, then law school, joined Vista, and went to Alaska to work for legal aid. Finally, he moved to New York to become a playwright. At six foot four, my brother John was larger than life. He had a phenomenal mind, an expansive spirit, 
and a gift for making and keeping a rich and diverse collection of friends. In June 1986, my family traveled to Cincinnati from their various homes across the United States to celebrate my rabbinic ordination. Despite the warm weather, John had a persistent and troublesome cough. Two months later, he finally went to his primary care physician, who ordered a chest x-ray, which revealed an enormous mass in John's capacious chest. A subsequent biopsy revealed that John had a rare cancerous tumor. Ten months later, my 37-year-old brother was dead. Over the course of the first year of my rabbinate, I watched my large, strong, charming, and brilliant brother fight and eventually lose a mortal battle with a cancer that devoured his body and fully depleted his physical resources. Over the last days of his life, my parents and siblings took turns sitting at his side, reading to him, conversing when he had the strength, sitting silently with him as he slept or dozed. We held his paper-thin hands in ours. We watched a formerly powerful man become a shell, even as we had the privilege of accompanying John's strong spirit through what became his final days on earth. Among many Talmudic stories about the rabbis and their own travails is one that stands out. It explains the enormity of Rabbi Yehud Hanasi's sufferings and his equanimity in accepting their arrivals and their subsequent departures. The story begins with quoting Rabbi, who completed the compilation of the Mishnah in the second century of the Common Era. The Talmud teaches that he responded to his pain by stating how beloved is suffering. The Talmud goes on to relate that this sage accepted 13 years of suffering, which eventually came to an end. The suffering began when a calf that was being led to slaughter hid its head in the folds of the rabbi's garment and bleated to protest its fate. Rabbi replied, go, for this you were created. The angels heard the rabbi's seemingly callous response and said to the Holy One, since he shows no mercy, let suffering come to him. Thirteen years later, rabbi's maidservant, who like several other women of agency in the Talmudic text is never named, was sweeping the house when she came across a litter of newborn weasels and was about to cast them out, the rabbi interrupted her by saying, let them be, for it is written that God's mercy is upon all God's creatures. The angels, hearing this, responded, since rabbi shows mercy to these most vulnerable of creatures, let us show mercy to him. And his years of suffering came to an end. Each of us is vulnerable from the learned individual to the calf, from the least of the residents of our homes to the master and mistress of the house. The Talmudic text teaches that the Holy One and God's ministering angels dispense both judgment and mercy. 
As we read this text, we may be reminded of the folk song, Dona Dona, which introduces a calf who cries on its way to the slaughter. It is challenged by the farmer. Who told you a calf to be? Echoing rabbi's response to the hapless animal who sought refuge from his fate in the rabbi's cloak. All of God's creatures are vulnerable. The only question is how and when our vulnerabilities become visible or manifest in our lives and how we respond to them. So that's part of my story. And how do we respond? So the first way that many of us respond, or a way, this is not in any kind of order, is by seeking community. And many of you have found that community here in this temple, in this sanctuary, in this room. When we feel most vulnerable, for some of us, the impulse is to reach out. Who else will be there for me? I can't go through this alone. Someone will walk with me. An additional way is by telling stories. So I began this morning with a bit of my story. And all of you know the power of sharing our stories. When we hear one another into speech, both the teller and the listener are transformed. Even when the listener says no word at all and just is present as another human being, those of us who share feel heard. We become visible. Our story takes on new meaning. And as all of you know, because we've all told stories about our lives, the story becomes clearer or it loses its clarity but as we tell it, we learn more from it. This is sacred storytelling. We can make our conversations sacred conversations when they truly come from the heart. The rabbis teach us that which comes from the heart enters the heart. So that is another possibility. Seeking community sharing stories, and here I've shared not only my story, but I shared a story from the Talmud, which some of you may have heard before, but we hear it again with a different valence. We Jews are so blessed. We have such amazing texts. I've brought way too many to look at today, and I do want to watch the time because I want to hear from Don. But I wanted to share with you another text. It's on the piece of paper on your table. And what we're going to look at is a very ancient poem. We started out with a very contemporary poem, and now we go back a few centuries. Here we are in the 21st century. We're going to go back to the 6th. So we'll start on the side that looks like a poem. And I love this poem, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as well, because it tells us about how ancient our situation of vulnerability is. See how we stand before you, 
from foot to head, from sinew to bone, from soul to flesh. The soles of our feet are sore, our toes bruised, our feet wobble, our heels are battered, our ankles totter, our legs hang useless, our knees stagger, our thighs are thin, our hips quiver, our loins are in anguish, our entrails howl, our heart leaps out, our arms are fallen. Our hands grasp nothing. Our shoulders are shrunken because of the yoke upon our neck. Our throat is twisted because of the blows upon our cheeks. Our lips are parched, our teeth set on edge. Yet your praise is in our mouths and your righteousness on our tongues. The breath of our nostrils is cut short. Our ears ring, our forehead is shamed, our face is pale, our eyes dim. Our temples are in pain, our heads bend down, our hair stands on end, our bones are frightened, our skin is shriveled, our soul is sick, our spirit is restless. We've been tried by fire and tested by water, yet in sorrow, in joy and sorrow, at home and in exile, morning and evening, twice daily, we proclaim. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So here, the voice of an ancient poet comes to us and says, I'm a mess. I can barely stand. I mean, the images are so powerful. And the cataloging here of every single part of body that is just not doing what it should do or what we thought it should do. And yet the poet is saying, your praise is in my mouth and your righteousness is on our tongue. Now, for some of us, it's like, yeah, easy for him to say. But here is what our tradition offers us. The possibility of praise even when we feel most bereft, <coughs> most empty, most weak, this is the tradition of hope that is all of our inheritance. We're the people who every year at our Seder, when we celebrate our freedom, we also open the door of hope. We invite Elijah to the table. We say, come Elijah, you who connect the generations one to the other. In our darkest days, we throw open that door and invite hope back in. That's really who we are as people. And life often tries to blind us to the rich texts of our tradition, the rich possibility of community and of words, words that come out of our mouths words that come out of our tradition. I realize that I really want to stop because I want to learn from Don and from you, but now, so the books now become more symbol than reality because we're not going to open them, but maybe we will later depending on your questions. But I do want to tell you, I happen to love this new prayer book that we have. I hope you're becoming familiar with it as you use it week after week um, here in the temple. But there are... We, our textual tradition is so rich, so rich, 
And one of the things that, on, and if we have more time, on the back of this, there is one psalm. What I do want to just share with you, we're not going to look at that psalm, but I wanted to remind each of us that we have a book that belongs to us of 150 poems of praise, of pain, of questioning, of anger. The Psalter, our book of 150 poems, is ours. So some of you, how many in this room have ever taken, really studied Psalms with one of your rabbis? Not enough, but a few. I'm so glad a few. Okay. So you have rabbis and a cantor who know this. The cantor knows how to sing almost all of them. Many of them have been set to music, and they are beautiful. And some of them, actually the one that I printed up for you, is one that many of you know the tune to. But do we get to go back and look at the words? What does it really mean? So that the next time you sing it with the cantor, it will have a different valence to you because the words will have come alive in a different way. So a few tools or tricks, that's just the beginning of what I hope will be a much longer conversation. So now we're going to turn to Don, and then I'm hoping you're going to have some questions um, and some opportunities for us to continue conversation together.